0: Hi, this is John Harcher. Welcome to episode 38 and season 3 of Keep on Grooving. This time out, we'll prepare for the upcoming release of the Hollywood Bowl August 18, 1967 concert by going over the summer tour of the U.S. between Monterey and the Hollywood Bowl with a couple days, give or take. Well, it wasn't so much a tour as a series of multi-night stands to build up their reputation. And build it they did. They scared off one famous group and ended being paired up with the most unlikely of bands. We'll go over their surprisingly long career as well. People thought they'd be gone after a number of years, but ended up revived decades later thanks to MTV. Oh yeah. And we'll also go over the one moment that ended up changing Jimmy's life from that point on. Episode 38, the US tour, June, July 1967, the return of Curtis Knight, and a gang of primates who get the funniest looks from everyone they meet. So here we are at the start of year three. Once again, thanks to everyone for listening and all the positive comments and reactions. I was going to go back and do the European tour in early 1969, but I'll put that off until next year. Today, we'll take a look at how the Jimi Hendrix Experience forged their images as a killer band after their smashing debut at the Monterey Pop Festival. They still hadn't put out an American version of their debut album, Are You Experienced?, and weren't getting airplay on top 40 stations with their singles. So they had to do it the old-fashioned way, just Get out there and play. And that's just what they did. In musician circles, Jimmy already had a stellar reputation as being a complete original. The experience had been the stars of the London club scene in early 1967, and now it's time to hit the U.S. There was just one problem. With no album to promote, they didn't have anything lined up coming out of the festival. But for those days, as usual, in steps impresario Bill Graham. He lined them up to do a week in San Francisco at the Fillmore Auditorium, not to be confused with the one that had direction in the title a few years later. They'd be on a ticket with Gabor Spazzo, the guy who did Gypsy Queen that Santana tacked on and the end of Black Magic Woman, and Jefferson Airplane. We don't have any recordings of that run, but we can guess it was probably a lot like Monterey with an additional song or two. In the UK, they'd been doing Stone Free and had begun working Catfish Blues into the set as well. Whatever the setlist was, the performance knocked the daylights out of Jefferson Airplane. According to Ultimate Hendrix, they dropped out of the run after one date and were replaced by Big Brother and the holding company. Setlist.com has them on the whole run, and Big Brother gets added by the end of it. Whatever the circumstance, it ended up being a very successful run, earning them a bonus from the notoriously tight Mr. Graham. A week after Monterey, the experience played a free gig at Golden Gate Park. Again, no recordings of this appear to be out there, but there are lots of pictures. Jimmy had on the blue military-type jacket he was seen wearing at Monterey Pop during the Robbie Shankar segment. He really connected with the audience like he did at Monterey. He also connected up with an old friend who we'll be hearing more of later, Buddy Miles. Having taken San Francisco by storm, they headed down to the City of Angels. Their first job in Los Angeles would be the recording of a new single. Jimmy had begun working on a new song based on, of all things, the harpsichord. A demo for Burning the Midnight Lamp was recorded at Olympic Studios in May. You can hear it on the Purple Box. Hendrix and Chaz Chandler came up with a number of ideas for the song, including adding a female choir of sorts as backup singers. Chaz made arrangements to record at Houston Studios. When they got there, it was quite a step down from Olympic. They recorded there for three days at the end of June, but Chandler scrapped all the recordings, not liking the sound at all. However, one positive to come out of this session was the introduction of the wah-wah pedal into Jimmy's reserve of effects. Noel says he helped inspire the song's intro with the wah-wah over top of the harpsichord. Another positive was the creation of a new song, The Stars to Play, with Laughing Sam's Dice. They wouldn't be using the first recordings of the song from L.A., but they would continue to work on it once they returned to New York. We'll get to that in a minute. But in any case, these sessions themselves didn't yield a single. They played a couple of final California gigs at the Santa Barbara Fairgrounds and the Whiskey A Go-Go before Jimmy's triumphal return to New York. Well, maybe triumphal is a bit of an overstatement. The night they got back into New York, they played the Scene Club with The Seeds and Tiny Tim. Yeah, and just wait, this isn't the least odd ticket on this tour. After a festival in New York, the band went into Mayfair Studios working with engineer Gary Kelgren. This was far more to Chandler's liking. The studio was run by producer Tom Wilson, who'd done work with Simon and & Garfunkel and the Velvet Underground, so he knew how to get unique sounds. He recommended Kelgren, who in turn brought his wife Marta along in as a receptionist. Hearing the band's idea of wanting to use a female choir, she brought in the sweet inspirations to handle that aspect. Jimmy had written lyrics to Midnight Lamp on the plane ride over from L.A., so the song was now ready to go. After two days, they had it down and set. From there, Mike Jeffrey came through with some great news. He'd gotten them signed on to a major tour. The experience would be the opening act for The Monkees. Now, fair to say they weren't exactly going for the same audience at that point. The band arose out of an idea from producers Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson to do a TV version of the Beatles films A Hard Day's Night and Help. They held auditions in Los Angeles. One auditioner was Steven Stills. I'm gonna have to do a whole episode on him. He's just so tied into everything going on. And they ended up with an even split, two actors and two musicians. The actors were Davy Jones, who would actually been in front of a huge TV audience already, appearing on The Ed Sullivan Show as part of the cast of Oliver the same night the Beatles made their first appearance there. The other actor was Mickey Dolenz, who had been the star of the TV show Circus Boy. The musicians were folkster Peter Tork and Texan Mike Nesmith. The good news was that Tork and Nesmith had very engaging personalities, making them natural for TV, and Jones and Dolans were such strong singers, they ended up being the main leads early on. The bad news was they weren't very varied instrumentalists. So music director Don Kirshner brought in studio musicians to record their songs, and outside writers such as Neil Diamond, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, and Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart as songwriters. Boyce and Hart came up with the show's famous theme song and their first number one hit, Last Train to Clarksville. On a little side note, I live in the West Windsor area here in Jersey, right near the Princeton Junction train station. One of the main roads near here is Clarksville Road. Guess which song is in my head constantly? They followed that up with a second number one song, I'm a Believer, written by Neil Diamond. The show premiered in September 1966 on NBC the same month another show popped onto the network, Star Trek. The Monkees was a wacky situation comedy that had musical interludes for the boys to get their songs out to the public. It wasn't a huge hit, but gained enough of a following with the teeny bopper crowd that they were able to fill arenas. This required them to get better at playing instruments, which soon became a point of contention, which we'll get to in a little bit. At first, they were kind of looked down on by most of the regular music scene as being fakes. This would change over time but not in the summer of 1967 and not with Jimmy and Chaz. Chandler was furious at Jeffrey for not understanding their audience. Jimmy also wasn't thrilled, even though he was personal friends with the guys in the band, especially Peter and Mickey. Nonetheless, they went down to Florida to join the tour. They played a couple shows there, two in the Carolinas, and a four-night stand in Forest Hill Stadium in New York. So picture a group of 12, 13, 14-year-old girls watching the Monterey set with their parents in tow. If the rock stars there couldn't believe what they saw, imagine the gang from the suburbs going out for a fun night with those goofy boys on TV and seeing this. After nine dates, everyone knew this just wasn't going to work out. So they concocted a story about the Daughters of the American Revolution complaining and the experience graciously bowing out. By the time anyone actually asked the DAR about it, it was long <laughs> since past and done. So the monkeys finished their tour and went back to their show. The second year found them asserting more of an influence over it. Mickey got a perm and they started including more of their own written songs in the lineup. On the album front, they wanted to get out of Don Kirshner's influence. They'd made the albums The Monkees and more of The Monkees with him. They were preparing a third, I don't know, even more of The Monkees, based around Neil Diamond's A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You. But the band balked. Things got so heated, Mike Nesmith actually punched a hole in the wall to express his displeasure. They ended up striking out in their own direction, starting out with the album Headquarters, and continuing with Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, and the birds, the bees, and the monkeys. The show was canceled at the end of the second season as the boys were preparing to bring newer artists into mainstream view, like Frank Zappa, who made an appearance towards the end of the show, and possibly Janis Joplin in the new season that never happened. But that wasn't the end of the boys in the visual medium. As the show finished, they decided to make a movie. It's Hard to describe head without seeing it. There's no plot, so to say. There's a lot of music and surprising guest stars like Victor Mature to Annette Funicello to the cast of another movie from producer Bob Rafelson that was in production at the time, Easy Rider. In fact, one cast member of that film worked on the script for this film. Guess who? Jack Nicholson. It wasn't exactly a major success they had trouble marketing it, one idea had them saying that the monkeys give you, but they decided against it. Around that point, Peter left the band, followed by Mike after one more album. By 1970, they were pretty much done. Until they got life again from the same place their fellow NBC cancelmate Star Trek did in reruns. First, CBS decided to put the show on as part of their Saturday morning rotation. Then it went into syndication alongside other kids' programming. I mean, I first remember it on WNEW Channel 5 here in New York at like 2.30 in the afternoon. It bounced around a bit, but I'd say it was on for most of the 70s. At one point, I sat down to watch it on a Saturday afternoon and noticed a couple things. A. What was it doing on Saturday at 1.30 in the afternoon? B. Where was the laugh track? Though I do remember a couple episodes without one. And C. Why is it so long? Years later, I realized I was watching Head and didn't even know it. As the show gained new life in syndication, the boys went off to do their own things. Peter veered towards Folk and ended up being a frequent guest on New Jersey's Uncle Floyd show. Davey ended up making a famous appearance as Marshall's crush on the Brady Bunch before heading back to the theater. Mickey did some voiceover work for Hanna-Barbera. I remember seeing his name on the Funky Phantom. But it was Mike who arguably had the greatest and most varied success. He'd already had a hit single as a writer for the song Different Drum by the band Stone Ponies and their soon-to-be-famous singer, Linda Ronstadt. Mike actually does do the song in an episode of The Monkees, but nothing like how Linda does it. In the early 70s, he had a hit single in the Top 40 with Joanne. His mother was actually also having success, creating something that offices would come to rely on over the next couple decades, liquid paper. This allowed Mike a bit of freedom to experiment with a type of video music presentation he called elephant parts. It was kind of an evolution ahead, just a little more grounded. He expanded the concept later in video parts. And dabbled in film production with Time Rider. If anyone ever says, I'm my own grandfather, think of this film. People thought of Elephant Parts as sort of an early music video that would inspire MTV. The channel would return the favor in a way a few years later. By the mid-80s, TV was changing and a lot of the old independent channels and syndicated repeats were starting to go away. But with the rise of cable, these shows had somewhere to go. MTV had concentrated on music programming since it started in August 1981. In February 1986, they decided to try something new and aired a weekend-long marathon of the Monkees. To their complete surprise, it became an event. People were actually holding watch parties for it. I remember my buddy Ray and I were at a church youth meeting and the first thing he said to me when I got there was like, have you been watching the monkeys marathon? We were up all night with it. This led Mickey and Peter to do some new recordings including the appropriately named That Was Then This Is Now. The two of them along with Davy Jones then went on the road for a 20th anniversary tour. I actually think they were playing Great Adventure the night of my prom. Nesmith didn't join for the whole tour but did make an appearance on stage when they reached Los Angeles. From there, they continued touring for the next few decades, and actually put out a couple albums here and there along the way, both with and without Mike, until Davey's untimely passing in 2012. In February 2019, Peter left us after a lengthy illness, then three years later, Mike Nesmith passed away mere months after doing a tour with Mickey. Dolan's is now the last one left, and actually just put out an album of REM covers. The band has received a major reevaluation and is looked upon quite favorably. Pretty good for a band that was literally thrown together at auditions. Say, wasn't, wasn't this show supposed to be about Jimi Hendrix? Let me get back to him with the event that caused trouble for him the rest of his life. On July 17th, Jimi ran into a couple of his old bandmates from Curtis Knight and Squires. He went with them over to PPX Studios with his wah-wah pedal in hand to do some jamming, and recording with them. The most generous explanation of his actions was he figured if he helped out with some recording, maybe the whole previous contract thing would just go away. Needless to say, it didn't. Two days later, the experience went back to Mayfair Studios to work on The Stars to play with Laughing Sam's Dice for a couple of days. It felt good for them to use eight-track recordings so they didn't have to keep bouncing the four tracks down to two to open up the other tracks for overdubs. They finished the week out by playing The Salvation Club and the old home of Jimmy James and the Blue fames at Cafe A After that, they took a well-deserved rest, looking forward to next month. They've been signed to reprise records at the urging of President Moe Austin, and their debut album would hit U.S. record stores towards the end of August. The future looked promising, and it was, with a little storm cloud thrown in. Next time, we'll go over the events of August 1967, which included more recording with Curtis Knight and a record release out of nowhere, a return to the West Coast, and the U.S. release of Are You Experienced? We'll also be going over the new album, Live at the Hollywood Bowl, August 18th, 1967. We'll see if it's as much of a missing piece as Woburn proved to be. That's next time I Keep on Grooving. We'll have it ready in time for Jimmy's birthday at the end of November. Please hit the subscribe button if you like what you're hearing. I'm John Hartra. Thanks for listening.